Well, uh, this session uh, I envision being an introduction to Aquinas on natural law, setting his natural law teaching in context. So in the three other sessions that I'll be uh, with you, uh, that I'll be teaching with you or leading with you, we'll go into a little more of the details of Aquinas on natural law and human law. But one of the things that is actually most difficult, I think, about studying natural law and is the hardest thing to find in a study of Aquinas on natural law, in my opinion, is setting it in its wider context in Aquinas' thought and how he conceives it uh, in a very big picture perspective. And that's difficult because uh, most people who are teaching it are not experts in that at all. Now, I don't quite claim to be an expert in that, but it is what we at the Thomistic Institute are devoted to, and I've spent a lot of time studying a lot of other areas of Aquinas. So often, Aquinas' treatise on law is excerpted and read by students of, of political theory or of law, uh, even students of natural law, who are trying to just focus in on that, as if it were a discrete and independent study in, say, the domain of jurisprudence. And of course, Aquinas does have many insights with respect to jurisprudence. And it's very good for law students, students of political theory or jurisprudence to study the treatise on law. So I don't want to say, don't read it. Uh, and it's quite sensible since the Summa Theologiae, Aquinas is um, probably his greatest single work. Uh, it's quite sensible that you don't read the whole thing because it's a very big work, and it requires a lot of effort to master all of it. So it's sensible to have excerpts, and in fact, this book, uh, which we're using for this course, uh, edited by, or translated by Alfred Ferdoso, um, who's a good friend who teaches philosophy professor at Notre Dame Law School, or at Notre Dame uh, University, Treatise on Law, the complete text, it's a good translation, but it's only a part, of course, so it's sensible to have things like this. But you just have to understand the defects or the, the drawbacks, what you're missing when you have uh, just this section of the Summa excerpted. So uh, what I hope is to really delve into this subject, but also to set it in context. Now, in fact, there are really two hurdles for students who want to read excerpts from Aquinas on law or on natural law. The first. Uh, is what I've just been uh, referring to, that this subject on philosophy of law is just a facet or a part of a larger whole that Aquinas is presenting. So we could say it's not only a part of jurisprudence, but it's also part of a philosophy of justice. And even more fundamentally, we could say it's a part of philosophical ethics, or more properly, moral theology. So you won't fully understand what Aquinas is doing unless you keep this in mind and unless you have some sense of how what he's doing in this section relates to his wider project with respect to philosophy and theology, which really is attempting to deal with the whole. I mean, the whole of reality the whole of revelation, the whole of man's search for wisdom, the whole of our directing our lives towards their ultimate end. And that's where he is setting this inquiry about law. He's setting it in the context of that. If we should examine our lives and listen to not only the world around us, but also listen to what God reveals to us about his plan for the whole cosmos, where do we fit into that, and how do we attain our ultimate end? And what part does law play in that? Okay, so that's really the wider context. It's hard to see that. There's a second challenge, or a second hurdle to overcome, which in a way is even more challenging than that, because I've just been able to give you a very, very brief and sketchy overview of this big picture. There's been a gradual shift in the meaning of certain terms and concepts in the centuries between Aquinas and ourselves. 
So it's even possible to read all of Aquinas' texts, like the whole Summa, and still misunderstand what he is saying. So it's not impossible to understand Aquinas. It just requires a sensitivity to the fact that you can't just presuppose that your first way of using this term is going to be the way Aquinas is using the term. You have to be paying attention to the meaning of the terms and of the concepts. So, in fact, I think Aquinas' thought is very clear and very compelling, but it does sometimes involve conceptual shifts from the way we typically think about them, about these questions. And so you have to push your mind a little bit. Now, I find that this is extremely fruitful. And for me, so we, there were some references to Pinker's book, uh, I'll refer to that in just a moment, Cerves Pinker's, The Sources of Christian Ethics. Um, that book, as a young Dominican, I read it uh, as part of my training over at the Dominican House of Studies. It changed my life in the sense that all of a sudden I realized, oh, there's a new way to think about this whole complex of concepts about law, happiness, obligation, justice, duties, rights, all of that, the whole relation between law, morality, happiness, and justice, Aquinas has a deeper and different way of putting those pieces together than typically we do in modernity and post-modernity. And the real moment of break there, according to Pink Hairs, is occurs in the 14th century with nominalist philosophy. And you know, whether we like it or not, whether we want to be nominalists or not, we have inherited a discourse that is deeply influenced by nominalist categories, and you have to work very hard to overcome those categories and to think in a more classical way. Once you do, it's very powerful, and you're able to start making connections. Okay, so if you want to read more about this, I recommend Cerves Pinker's The Sources of Christian Ethics. There's a second great book about this, a famous book, by uh, the Notre Dame philosopher Alistair McIntyre called After Virtue. And if that isn't on your reading list or you haven't read it yet, uh, definitely put it on your to-do list at some point. McIntyre recounts in that book, the, he sort of walks you through the history of moral philosophy and shows how the very concepts have broken down and generated great confusion. So we still use the same words but we use them in very different ways, meaning very different things. So we've inherited kind of traditional formulas, but when we repeat those formulas, they don't make sense to us anymore, or they don't any longer mean quite what they originally meant. And that's generated generation after generation of new moral philosophers who say, well, there's some incoherence here, let me try and correct it. And uh, McIntyre's claim is, really you have to go back to Aquinas and, and Aristotle in order to correct it. Or you just have to become purely postmodern and become a Nietzschean. He thinks in the end you have those, those choices. But that's McIntyre's project. That, not really quite our task here. So our task in this session, this morning, is to prepare well or to set the stage for understanding the details of Aquinas on natural law, which means covering some broader questions and the introductory material. Really, I want to be able to get through, ideally, I don't know if we'll be able to make it all the way through to the readings from question 93, but I ask you to read, um, in preparation for coming here, questions, excerpts from questions 90, 91, 92, and 93. So that's the kind of prologue to the work that we'll do tomorrow on natural inclinations and natural law proper in question 94. So. The best place to begin to get a sense of the overview, and I'm, I'm not going to go through this in detail, is the handout that I uh, just had passed around. I've just given you on this handout the prologues to the different parts, sub, subsets, the treatises in Aquinas' Summa Theologiae. So these prologues are actually very important because Aquinas tried to systematically organize all that he was going to treat. And he shows you in the prologues how the parts are interrelated. So just to very, very briefly review this so that you have a sense of where we are in the Summa, 
you have the prologue to the Summa Theologiae as a whole. Now, how many of you have, are familiar already with the Summa and reading the Summa, the parts of the Summa? Most of you? Uh, okay, so let me at least just give a very, very quick there, uh, summary. There are three parts to the Summa. The prima pars in, in Latin, which just means first part. The secunda pars, which is subdivided into two. And then the tertia pars. Okay, now if you count the subdivisions of the, of the second part um, as each distinct, then you'd say that there are four parts. But traditionally, we refer to them as the prima pars, the secunda pars, which has a subdivision. So you have the prima secunda, secundae. That means the first part of the second part. It's, you know, it works better in Latin than in, than in English. It's like part 2a. And then the secunda secundae, that's the second part of the second part. That's the, uh, so we're gonna, our, our texts come from the prima secundae. So if you see it abbreviated, it'll be like STH 1-2. That means the first part of the second part. Is that clear? And then you have the tertia pars, or the third part. Okay, so if you look here, the prologue to the whole Summa, he tells you that uh, the master of Catholic truth wanting to instruct beginners, uh, aims to treat in this book whatever belongs to the Christian religion. Okay, so it's basically the, the whole. Let's uh, skip to the next prologue. This is after the kind of methodological treatment in prima pars, that's STH 1, question 1. Okay, now the prologue to question 2, that's the next text you have here tells you that now we're, he's going to treat the knowledge of God. And he goes on. Not only as he is in himself, but also as he is the beginning of things and their last end, and especially of rational creatures. So now he gives you the outline of the whole Summa. The first part treats of God. The second part treats the rational creatures advance towards God, or man's return to God. And the third part treats Christ, who as man is our way to God. Okay, so when he treats law in the Prima Secundae, he's treating the rational creature's return to God. Now, jump to the next prologue. This is after he's treated God in himself. In question 44, he begins treating creatures. He doesn't just treat creatures in the abstract. How does he treat them? As creatures having proceeded from God. In other words, all of creation comes forth from God and returns back to God. So in the end, the Summa is about God and about creatures insofar as they come from God and return to him. So that comes through actually very clearly in the treatise on law which I'm sure you noticed. Aquinas is talking about human law not as a subject distinct in itself, but as, in a way, coming from and concretizing some reflection of God's eternal law, which, in a way, is simply God, by the way. Right? So it's very beautiful to see that this is set in this theological vision. Now, the prologue to... The secunda secunda, that's at the bottom of this first page. This is where Aquinas is going to begin talking about the human creature and the human creature's return to God. So what does he begin with? Man is said to be made in God's image. Insofar as the image implies an intelligent being endowed with free will and self-movement. That is extremely important for talking about law. Because for Aquinas, the reason that human beings are able to make laws is because we are made in the image of God. And so we share, we participate in some way, in these most typically divine activities of knowing and willing or loving. And therefore, we can understand and we can move ourselves we can direct 
ourselves, and we can communicate directions to other people. And when we talk about human law, that's in a way what we're talking about, right? We're talking about someone with authority communicating directions to another in view of some end which the governor or the lawmaker has somehow ascertained and is responsible for moving the group towards the goal. So this is embedded, Aquinas' theory of law, embedded in an understanding of what it means to be human as made in the image of God. So Aquinas then wants to, he's going to have a very, the, the secunda pars, these two parts, prima secunde, 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 are the longest section of the Summa, where he treats man, inasmuch as he too is the principle of his actions, having free will and control of his actions, uh, and then um, the principles of man's actions. Okay, so look at the next prologue. This is the prologue to question one of the Prima Secundae. So Aquinas begins with the last end of human life. And then secondly, those things by means of which we can advance towards that end. Why is that? Well, if you're trying to get somewhere, you first have to know where you're trying to go. And then you make a plan for how to get there. So this is an act of reason. You don't just begin randomly acting. Your action is guided by the goal that you're trying to accomplish. And so Aquinas says, in questions of action, the end always comes first. That is, what you're aiming at is the first principle, and then you work out how to get there. So the first thing you have to get clear on is what is the end? What end are you pursuing? What are you trying to accomplish? That's true about any activity, but above all, a life lived well. If you don't know what your life is about, how are you making your daily decisions? It's going to be, it's not going to be very well ordered. If you don't have some sense of where what, what your life is all about. So Aquinas has a very beautiful treatment uh, on the last end, and he examines in classical fashion some things that Aristotle, Boethius, and others, Cicero, uh, investigated. What candidates are there for the goal of human life? Wealth, power, honor, uh, prestige, and so forth. And he said pleasure. He examines all of these things, and he says none of them are sufficient to be the final goal that you direct your life towards. And if you're interested in that, um, actually, I, we, um, in collaboration with another group, just published an excerpt of that part of the Summa uh, with an introduction, so maybe we can get those copies for you uh, later today so you can read through that uh, treatment if you'd like. Once you have clarity on your end, then you have to start talking about how you act to achieve the end. Here you have the prologue to Prima Secundae question six. So we have to consider human acts in order to know by what acts we may obtain happiness. Aquinas is going to say our last end in a certain sense simply is happiness. You always act in order for happiness. We'll talk more about that. And then we have to get into the details. Aquinas does actually want to get into the weeds of particular individual acts. And so he wants to lay out the principles of human acts. I'm going to skip over this. So let's move on to the next prologue, to question 49 in the Prima Secundae. He just is uh, summarizing here. He's treated human acts, passions. Those would be like your emotions, which affect your acting. And then he's going to treat... uh, the intrinsic principles of human acts. What are those? Virtues and vices. And then extrinsic principles. What are those? Law and grace. Okay, so now we're starting to see the place of our, um, of our inquiry. And then we get to the prologue to the stuff that you read. Prima Secundae, question 90. We now have to consider the extrinsic principles of human acts. So intrinsic principles, like your virtues, they are intrinsic to you. They're within you. So if you have a virtue of honesty, 
That virtue shapes the way that you act so that you're able to act in an honest way and move towards the, uh, the good of justice. That's an intrinsic principle of your acting well. But there are also extrinsic principles, like especially if you imagine you're testifying in a courtroom case and you've taken an oath uh, or you're under some other legal obligation to tell the truth, the FBI is interviewing you and you know that making a false statement to an FBI agent is a crime. Okay, you should know that if the FBI ever interviews you. Don't get in trouble. Some people here, this is a famous way to get in trouble in Washington, D.C. Um, don't, don't do that. That's an extrinsic principle of your truth-telling, right? The intrinsic principle would be that you're, you have the virtue of honesty. The extrinsic principle would be uh, Congress has passed a law saying that if I lie to this person, I could be imprisoned. That's also going to shape your action, right? So the law is an extrinsic principle of action. That's interesting that Aquinas is going to be addressing law with respect to human action aiming towards an end. That's absolutely fundamental. But let's look at this a little more carefully. Now the, he writes, now the extrinsic principle inclining to evil is the devil of whose temptations we have spoken in the first part. So he's not going to talk about that. That is also an extrinsic principle, right? The devil is trying to, he gives you an idea of some uh, attractive thing that you know is not the fitting good for you the extra serving of chocolate cake or whatever it is. But the extrinsic principle moving to good is God who both instructs us by means of his law and assists us by his grace. So, law instructs. Note that Aquinas does not start by saying law obliges or threatens. So law is not for him first an extrinsic principle of acts because it threatens you with a punishment, but because it is instructing you. Now we'll learn, we have much more to say about that, but Aquinas thinks that law is a way of pointing you to the good. In other words, helping you order yourself to the end. There's a very simple illustration of this. Think about a, a parent with a small child. A parent with a small child says, don't touch the hot stove. Why does the mother say that to her daughter? It's not because she's trying to, to exercise control over her daughter. I mean, maybe there are some parents who are not very good parents who like get a thrill out of controlling their children. And, and you know, we can, we can see some defects of parenting where that starts to become apparent. But most parents issue injunctions like that to their children because they're concerned about the good of their child. And they know that the child does not yet understand that the stove is hot and will burn. And therefore, the law is a teacher to guide the acts of the child to keep the child on the right path so that the child will eventually internalize the wisdom of the parent and not, not want to touch the stove, will be self-motivated not to touch the stove. And the same thing with like running out in the street and so forth. So parenting actually is not a bad analogy here. As a child grows in maturity, the rules change, right? A parent changes the rules for the teenager and gives a lot more autonomy to the teenager, but probably also imposes different constraints because the, the parent knows there are going to be different temptations for the teenager and ways that the teenager needs to acquire moral virtue. So it's probably less worried about physical integrity of the child's body like getting burned or getting run over by a car, and more concerned about the moral virtues of hard work and uh, honesty and trustworthiness and so forth. And those are the things that the rules of the parent 
uh, are going to try to inculcate. But the point of those rules is not just to control, but to form. And Aquinas thinks that law performs this function and God works with us in that way. And that he assists us, now here's the second part, by his grace. So grace also is not something that comes from us, it comes from God. So it's extrinsic in that sense. It's intrinsic in another sense in the, in the way that it actually is in our soul. But what Aquinas is getting at is that God helps us by healing our nature and raising us up and moving us to good acts. That's not really our, the domain of our inquiry today uh, or, or this week. But it's good to know that Aquinas law, for, for Aquinas law graduates into grace because as you may have noticed, what is the last category of law that Aquinas treats? It's the new law. What is the new law? He's talking about the, the evangelical law of Christ, the new law of the gospel, which is nothing but the Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart and guiding you to a, an even higher good than your nature could teach you about. So guiding you to the supreme love of God and love of neighbor, the golden rule, the new commandment of love. That's the new law. And this already now is merging into the realm of grace. So law is not about controlling you or commanding you or punishing you or threatening you with punishments. It's about moving you towards the end by means of something extrinsic and principally with respect to your knowledge. Uh, if you want to just look on to the prologues that follow this, he talks about um, it for the secunda secunda virtues and vices, and that's where he's going to talk about justice. And there are some other texts that would be very interesting for our, uh, we, we may not have time in this seminar this week to talk about them, uh, but when Aquinas treats of justice, he treats also of like the virtues of a judge, of an advocate, uh, of a witness, and other things that are very interesting for, you know, if you're interested in the study of law. And then I've given you the prologue to the Tertia Pars about Christ, his incarnation, the sacraments that he instituted. Okay, that's the context. All right, now we have a lot more. Any, any questions about that initial preface to our study? We have a lot of other ground that I'd like to cover, and I, I don't want to just be lecturing all the time. But this, this session may be a little more of that than the sessions tomorrow and in the days following, so I hope you'll excuse that. So now let's turn to question 90. And you can open up your treatise on law. And you'll see right at the beginning that prologue that we just um, looked at about the exterior principles of acts. Now, Aquinas divides his treatment uh, of, of every subject into questions and then articles. I'm sure you've already seen that. The articles are like the individual, uh, individual particular questions, and the questions are kind of groupings of important themes. So first, he wants to discuss the essence of law. Okay, so if you go past the, um, the first paragraph there, he says, on the topic of law, we must first consider law itself in general and then the parts of law. So with respect to law in general, he's going to examine first, and this is question 90, the essence of law, then the different kinds of law, question 91, and then the effects of law, question 92. So this question, question 90, is about the essence of law. And he gives us four articles here. So an overview. Aquinas is working out, in a way, the definition of law. And he builds up the essential elements of that definition in these four articles. And he tells us in this prologue how to think about those individual articles. Okay, so look at what he writes. On this first topic that is in question 90 here, on the essence of law, there are four questions. One, is law something that belongs to reason? Two, what is the end or purpose of law? That's your translator's interpretation there. The Latin just says, secundo, 
de fine legis, concerning the end of law. And that's very important because, as you'll see, Article 2 is about the common good, which is the end that law is aiming at. We're going to have a lot more to say about that. Tertio de causa eius, third concerning its cause. And really, he's going to be looking at the efficient cause there, who makes laws, the lawmaker. And then fourth, the promulgation of law. That's, in a way, kind of a circumstance of law that has to do with it, with the penalties. Like, you cannot impose penalties unless the law has been promulgated. You, that's, that's, uh, you might be able to put that in, in the essence of law itself, but Aquinas sets it out as a third category. Okay, there's been a lot of ink spilt in contemporary jurisprudence and actually for centuries over the definition of law. So if you read, and, and maybe um, Professor Vermul can, can also at some point chime in here. If you read modern positivists, which uh, who are legion, um, or positivists and, and, their, and their inheritors uh, who, who are you know, deconstructing the law, they tend to use a descriptive definition. So this is, a, this is a kind of a major type of definition. If you just talk about what are the different ways you can define something, a descriptive definition is one type of definition you could offer. So it just tries to describe the thing. So for example, you could say a law is whatever is legitimately passed by a legislature. Or more simply, a law is the command of a sovereign. That's the definition of Thomas Hobbes, and also famously of John Austin, a, a modern positivist. Or you could say, a law is a set of instructions that guides in a binding way the activity of government officials. That's a kind of approximation of uh, Kelson's definition of law. Or you could say a law is a system of conventional social rules. That's another famous positivist, H.L.A. Hart. Now, in my view, this, these definitions are not satisfying, and they don't tell you very much. And they all tend to suggest that law is just a construction. It's, a, it's an artifice of human beings. Botanists use definitions like this, descriptive definitions, in order to identify different types of plants, for example. But we, we know that in certain cases, it seems like those categories are pretty arbitrary. And they don't really tell you necessarily that much about the plant itself. They just kind of tell you, well, this is not the same species as that. Suffice it to say that these descriptive definitions don't, in the end, tell you why law is a law, or why it's obeyed, or why it should be obeyed, or why it's binding, or what, where its obligation comes from. That's actually a big problem and a big debate among legal positivists, is like how to figure that out. Aquinas offers a very different kind of definition of law, as you'll see in question 90. He thinks that a good definition needs to express the essence of a thing. Now, what, what is he talking about, the essence? He's trying to get at what it is. Sometimes he will do this by offering what is typically called a logical definition. A logical definition in the field of logic identifies a genus and then a specific difference. The most famous uh, definition here probably is that man is a rational animal. So the genus there is animal. We share that animality with lots of other creatures, apes, dogs, rats, squirrels. What is distinctive about us, not only that we have a sense life, like all of those other uh, creatures, but that we have the power of reason. So you have the genus, animal, and then the specific difference, rational, 
And that gets you to the essence of what it means to be human, to be embodied, an embodied animal who is rational. But in this case, with respect to law, Aquinas doesn't give us that kind of definition. He gives us a different kind of definition. It's another very standard and traditional way of understanding of reality, and it's by way of the four causes, the four Aristotelian causes. Now, Aristotle thought that when you want to understand some reality, your mind will naturally gravitate towards identifying four types of cause of, of a reality. And this is, so we can call this an explanatory definition. It accounts for the genesis of a thing or accounts for the reality itself, understanding it by way of its causes. So a little uh, homework assignment for you when you have some free time, read Aristotle's discussion of uh, the four causes in, for example, he treats it in the physics and also in, uh, I think it's book two of the metaphysics. So what are the four Aristotelian causes? He thinks you've understood a, a thing when you've understood its material cause, its efficient cause, its formal cause, and its final cause. Okay, so I'm going to try and very briefly go through these. The one that people are most uh, typically unfamiliar with is the formal cause. So uh, often, if you think of, of a statue, you're trying to think of that, you think, oh, well, the matter is the marble, the efficient cause is the sculptor, the final cause, that's the why. Why did he make the statue? Uh, to display in somebody's garden. And then the formal cause, well, that's just the shape. Well, okay, maybe. But actually, formal cause is going something deeper. What Aquinas and Aristotle mean when they talk about a formal cause is a principle of a thing that accounts for it being what it is. So in a, in a certain way, we're talking about what is intelligible in the thing. Okay, some quick examples will help clarify this. A dining room table. All right, four causes. Analyze the four causes. Who made the table? The carpenter. Carpenter is the efficient cause. What is it made of? Wood. Wood is the material cause. What is the formal cause? It's the form or design of the table. And then there's the final cause, the reason why you built the table, because you wanted a place to sit and eat dinner. Okay, so that's the final cause. Okay, so note here that the formal cause is working in several ways. It is at once the, the essence of table, tableness. It's what allows you to identify this as a table, even if you've never seen this particular table before or this design of a table before, and some weird, you know, IKEA designers might come up with some weird table that doesn't seem to fit the standard rule, but, but you could say, oh yeah, okay, that's a table, because you understand what a table is, is for and what function it serves and so forth. You could also say, though, and this is very important about when we're talking about the formal cause, that the formal cause is the the design or pattern that the carpenter has in his mind when he's making the table. A carpenter doesn't just begin cutting wood at random. Only a very poor carpenter does that. Rather, he has at least a mental idea of what he's trying to make. And often he'll reduce that to a schematic, like a blueprint, even. Sometimes that form will only imperfectly be realized in the table. So, for example, the wood might have a crack in it or some kind of weird grain or a bunch of knots that make it uneven. Or the carpenter's woodworking activity might go wrong, like he might not cut straight or he's not good at joining the wood. So in that case, what does he say after he's finished the table? He'd say, well... 
this table didn't really turn out the way I wanted it to. What is he referring to there? He's saying the form was only imperfectly realized in this instance. And what went wrong? Well, either the matter wasn't really apt or my activity as an efficient cause wasn't very well done. But the form, in a way, is still in his mind. Okay, now consider a house. Bricks and mortar, wood, material cause. The builder, efficient cause, final cause in order to have shelter. But then you have the architectural plans. And there you have what guides the activity of the builders. Natural things, though, are a better way to see these four causes at work. Think of a cat. Can you analyze a cat in terms of the four causes? What's the matter? Well, the sperm and egg of the parents of the cat, plus the nutrients that this new cat assimilates into itself. What's the efficient cause? The father and mother, who by joining together in this act of sexual union, produce a new cat. What's the purpose of a cat? That's a great mystery. <laughs> it may be just to entertain us with cat videos. I don't know. Have you heard that uh, they've done studies of the typical domestic house cat? that um, it's related to the most aggressive form of cat in the wild, and also it exhibits grave signs of deep neuroses, which means that your cat really is trying to kill you. He's just too small. So I don't know why God made cats, but we could, there, there, we could say something about that. What's the formal cause of a cat? There we're talking about the essence of cat or the form of cat, catness. What makes a cat catty? And what makes a cat act like in its peculiar cat way, right? Cats do have catty ways of moving and of behaving, running, climbing the curtains. Um, okay, so ultimately Aquinas would say cat soul is, is what's the formal cause there. That's the essence of cat, informing the matter, making it what it is. All right, now, he uses this same way of analyzing reality, the four causes, to analyze law. So let's get back to, the, to our subject. The four causes operate analogically in the realm of law, which, of course, is not a material thing. And this is very interesting for our subject. At the end of Article 4 in Question 90, he gives you his famous definition of law, an ordination of reason for the common good from him who has care of the community, which is promulgated. So, efficient cause, the one who has care of the community. The final cause, the common good. The formal cause, okay, here we're getting at what is the essence of law itself? What is a law? It's an ordination of reason. And we might need to add, it's an ordination of reason for the common good that is promulgated. But the, the, the corest of the core there is an ordination of reason because uh, for the common good is understood as the final cause. These are very closely intertwined. But actually Aquinas does think that you, you have accounted now for law when you give this definition because you have, in a way, accounted for the most important causes. There's not, strictly speaking, a material cause of law because law is not a physical thing. But you might uh, be able to conjecture that the material cause of law might be the, the community. Note how powerful an idea of this, uh, idea this is. So a law, in a sense, is in the community that receives it. It's the good of the community. 
And it makes us wonder, is law really like an artifact? Or is it more like a natural kind? Is law more like a table? Or is it more like a cat or a tree? So legal positivists will, of course, say it's purely an artifact. And that we can manipulate it however we want according to the will of the lawmaker. And the deconstructionists, so the, the modern, um, the critical legal theorists, will say that law is always this. It's an exercise of will to control others. That's just, just no more. I mean, we cover it with a veneer of claims about justice, but that's just a charade because I'm trying to control you. I think the answer is much, that it, it is much closer to a natural thing, a natural kind. In other words, law necessarily emerges out of the fact that you have a community, and hence a common good. And a community is a natural thing. This is also a kind of modern conceit, which traces itself back to some Enlightenment theorists, that we are actually discrete individuals that don't naturally exist in community. Well, that's not true, right? You are born into a family. Before you do anything, you necessarily exist in relation to the other family members, especially your parents, whom you did not choose. And you cannot, you cannot uh, pick other parents. You just are originally in that set of relationships. And more than that, you're going to be born into a network of other famili wider familial and communal relationships. You're born into a neighborhood, into a town, and you just are in relationship with the other people who live there, whether you like it or not. Now, you can move out into the, into the you know, wilds and try to live apart, but in general, human beings almost always find themselves in these communities, and often communities that are not of their choosing. So it seems that human beings are naturally already in community, and therefore it requires us to talk about what is good for that community, and law just emerges as a part of what it means to be living in a community. Uh, let me just add a footnote. Even if you were to say, well, law is still a lot like a, an artifact, even artifacts are not infinitely malleable by our will. Uh, Monsignor Sokolowski, Robert Sokolowski, who teaches philosophy at Catholic U, gives a very good example of this. He says, imagine an art museum. An art museum is, is an artifact. It's a creation of human society and culture. Uh, what's the goal of an art museum? It's to display artworks, preserve and display them. What if, uh, you know, art museums are always trying to get more people to come and get kids to come in and do, you know, you got your fourth grade class coming and touring an art museum and appreciating the art. What if they said, well, we need to get more fourth graders in here, we need to get kindergartners in here, and we're going to give them finger paints and tell them to paint on the Picasso. What would you say about that? you say, that's a bad art museum. <laughs> Why? Because by doing that, they're destroying the works of art. In other words, even an artifact, in a way, has to respect the essence of the thing. And we understand what a bad table is, or a bad chair. Like, this is a bad table. Its legs are not even. Like, I can't sit here and eat. It's constantly rocking back and forth. It drives me nuts. That's, uh, that's actually true. So it's not true that we can just uh, arbitrarily, even artifacts, that we can arbitrarily change them. So this already, now we're making serious progress here towards understanding what Aquinas is talking about when he talks about natural law and human law and the relation between them. Because he thinks that law is, is deeply natural, just in a, this is a very general sense of natural, I think. Okay, let's keep moving. Let's take a look at these key elements in uh, the definition of law. The two most important that I want to focus on in just the remaining minutes that we have here Ordination of reason for the common good. Okay, so 90, Article 1, where the law is something pertaining to reason, Aquinas says law is the rule and measure of human acts. That's what he starts with 
at the beginning of that article. Regula et mensura actuum. You could first think of a ruler, and that's helpful. A ruler guides you in drawing a straight line, and its straightness and its length is a measure of the line that you draw. But notice that rule here, it does have this sense of, okay, if you break the rule, you're going to get punished. But the first sense here really is um, as a guide and a standard, right? Aquinas does not put in the first place the coercive dimension of law, but rather it's, it's a standard or a guide for action. And coercion comes in at the end if you fail. So the rule and measure is, in, is really in a deeper sense more like a blueprint of a house. So the blueprint is the rule and measure for the builders for their activity. When they begin building, they will measure their actions against the standard of the blueprint. And the foreman is going to say, hey, you screwed that wall up. The blueprint says it's supposed to be here, but you put it over there. You've got to move it. You've got to redo it. That's the very point Aquinas is making, that the rule and measure of human acts is what? Reason. Which is the first principle of human acts, he says. So if we just want to look at that, at how Aquinas lays this out here. Law is a certain rule and measure of acts, and according to which one is either induced to act or restrained from acting. Skipping a sentence. Now the rule and measure of human acts is reason, which, as he's discussed above, is the first principle of human acts. For it belongs to reason to order things to their end. Now this is building on something that Aquinas had dealt with earlier about a human act. So he says there's two kind of broad categories of things that human beings do. There are things that you do without thinking about them involuntarily. Your digestion, he would say your digestion is an act of a human being, but it is not a human act. Meaning, it's an act that a human being does, you digest, but it doesn't participate in reason which is what is characteristic of being human. Likewise, tapping your foot as you're sitting here impatiently waiting for me to move on to the next point, that is a probably not a conscious act. So that is an act of a human being. It is not a human act. What is a human act, like standing up and throwing a tomato at me, that would be, that would be a human act. That flows out of what makes you distinctly human as a rational animal. So we have the power of reason, we can know and love, we can order our lives intentionally according to when we perceive a good to be pursued, and then we can choose the means to accomplish it. That's what makes an act typically human. So um, that's also what makes an act praiseworthy or blameworthy, and therefore in the realm of morality. The moral deals with uh, acts that come forth from reason. So you may be sad that a wolf eats your sheep, but you don't really blame the wolf for doing that because that's the wolf just acting according to its nature. That's what wolves do. But if I ate your sheep, you would blame me And that's because I'm an author of my acts in a different way. Yeah, you have a question? Yeah, I just have a question about Aquinas' uh, law with certain rule and measure. How does that, uh, how does that relate with this definition of law that laws uh, dictate a practice? Is it supposed to be a relative definition or is it supposed to be coextensive? No, what he's trying to investigate here is why is, uh, why are we saying it's an ordination of reason? So that's the element of the definition that he's investigating in this article. And he's saying, well, it's an ordination of reason because law, uh, this is uniquely pertaining to how human beings order themselves. They don't order themselves just by being moved. 
we order ourselves by our rational activity. Yeah, I understand that. So I guess that my question is, when he says law is a certain rule and measure, is the is here, is, is it a definitional is, or is it? Oh, yeah, no, I think he... So, so does he think it's the essence of law, a rule and measure, or... He thinks law... Case, then, how does that relate to this definition of law later on that it's a dictator reason? Yeah, he... So, right, to say law is an ordination of reason is also, I think he says, this is like a synonym to say it's also a rule and measure. An ordination of reason is a rule and measure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, what I'd like to move on to, yeah, Desmond? It's an ordination of reason. What are these elements of reason that are being put in order? What are the, if we had to kind of then look at it as parts that are being one prioritized over the next, is there any way of kind of getting that abstraction of uh, if it's parts of reason that we're putting in a certain order? What are the other? Ah, uh, yeah. I don't think it's 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 not a it's not parts of reason that are being put in order. It's ordering us according to reason towards our end. That's I think what he thinks is happening here. By so, what is the law doing? It's ordering us by reason so that we can move towards the end. Yes, but it's also, uh, it's not just an ordination of activity because Aquinas wants this law also to pertain to God, or this definition of law to pertain to God. So he's tailoring it so that it will work in an analogical way for all different kinds of law. So eternal law is uh, simply God's own plan of wisdom, as we'll see in question 91. Um, or question 93, I think, is where he really goes into eternal law. All right, let me move. I'd like to just move quickly to uh, a few additional points, and then um, we can maybe stop and have some, some question, further questions. Uh, question 90, Article 2, on the common good. Law, what is the end of law? This is extremely important. So the two most important things to get clear on in this session are uh, ordination of reason for the common good. So two main subjects come up in this article. Happiness in general, and that came up in the previous session as well. So Aquinas treats that in detail earlier in the Summa. He thinks that it's a kind of metaphysical law that every agent always acts for the sake of an end. Otherwise, you're not properly talking about action. You're just talking about random, random uh, occurrences. Action implies moving towards a goal. It's not aimless. And simply to talk about moving towards a goal implies that you desire the goal. So it is a good in some measure for you. And Aquinas thinks that it is simply metaphysically always the case that whatever you do, you do it insofar as it conduces to some good. So you always are acting for a good or acting for your happiness, even if you are mistaken about what will make you happy or whether this is a good. Even somebody who's a masochist or somebody who's committing suicide, is choosing those things. Like, I choose pain, but I choose it because in, there's something desirable about it for me. So Aquinas just thinks there's no way to escape this metaphysically. You always act for a good and for seeking some happiness. So Aquinas, yeah. That's right, yes. He thinks that we are always acting towards an end, and this is actually what our choice concerns. We don't choose the ultimate end. We simply desire it. And our choices pertain to the means to get to the end. So part of Aquinas' overarching theory, if you want to go, go big here, 
God, if you were to see God, every creature that, that sees God desires nothing but God. So when you see the perfect good, it's absolutely attractive to the will. There's no way that you cannot want it because it is your perfect good. It's the fulfillment of every good. It's the source and fulfillment of every good. But everything less than God, every good less than God, is some partial good, not the perfect good. And so then it's possible for us to like pay attention to the, to the chocolate cake instead of reading my, you know, doing my homework. Which even though I'm not, I know that like this is really good for me since my whole plan of life means I got to finish this degree and go on and get a job and whatever. Uh, you know, the, or maybe chocolate cake is not the best uh, analogy there. Maybe it's just sitting, sitting by the pool and taking a nap, you know. That is an attractive, partial good for me. And I, if I choose it, I'm choosing it because I, I see the goodness of it. But I might be ignoring the more fitting good for me right now. So that's how Aquinas thinks we, may, we end up making bad decisions. L let me go back to Aquinas' text. I, I, I want to uh, kind of draw this to a close here, but let me just um, say some things about the, uh, uh, the common good. He says that, <clears throat> this is in the, um, on page four, or the second full paragraph, again, since every part is ordered towards its whole, in the way that what is incomplete is ordered towards what is complete, and since man is part of a perfect community, part of a complete community, law must properly be concerned with the ordering that leads to communal happiness. So this is where he's going to talk about law as being ordered to the common good. He thinks that every action is directed towards an end or towards some happiness. But when we're talking about our individual actions, we're not really, we don't properly give laws to ourselves. How, where is the domain of law? Law is with respect to some community, and so with respect to some common good. Okay, so what is the common good? This is a very uh, big and important question. Let me just give you a few, um, a few quick remarks about that, and then I'll, I'll sort of open up for, for final round of questions here. Um, there are some goods that are just particular individual goods. Private goods, you might say. Pizza. Pizza is a private good, or you could say a more noble private good, a bottle of French wine, something like that. Okay. We may all share a pizza, but we cannot share the individual slices. Like, if I eat my slice, you're not getting it. And likewise, we may share a bottle of wine, but we have to pour out the portions of wine into different glasses that cannot be consumed by two people at the same time. So of itself, these are private goods, even if there's a kind of joy in sharing them, you know, consuming them with each other. What makes a good a common good? So a common good is a different kind of good than a private good. What makes it common? Not that we are dividing it up and sharing it. That's like a pizza. It's common not by being divided up or not by being in a genus or a species of a group of things. It's common as a common final cause, as a common end. So the common good, in a way, is the common end of the community. And it has a shareability because it is the good of the whole or of the group as a group. Okay, so think, for example, of the striving of many persons to know the truth. Like those of us in this room. We can have a kind of common good in that pursuit. It is the common good of our fellowship here. Or think about uh, a sports team, or even better, an army. What is the goal of the sports team? What is the good, the end that they're pursuing? Winning. The goal of the army is victory. 
And that is shared by all of the members of the team or of the army. So it's commonly shared by them. If your team wins, you win. And if you simply measure your performance in the game by how many points you score and not by whether your team wins, you may be a good individual scorer, but you are not a good member of the team. And we all kind of get that. There's also a good of justice. And that's a common good of the city. So the common good of the city is not just having roads and a fire department and common defense. It is also having a just political order. You see, it is, in a way, providing for a good life of the political community so that it becomes a place where human beings flourish precisely as social animals. So not just as animals who need food and drink and shelter, but animals who need friendship and justice and a kind of domain in which they can, protected by law, have a flourishing family life and things like that. You see how we're speaking on a different, in a different register. So justice, victory, truth, these are common goods that are numerically one, but are the single possession of none. So the common good then is an object, you could say, of noble striving. And then it begins to make sense why an individual might totally rationally and willingly sacrifice a private good for the sake of the common good, because the common good is a good of a higher order. So the soldiers in the first wave at Normandy were not doing something irrational. Why? Because they loved the common good even more than they loved their individual lives. And they were willing to put their lives at risk for that common good. And that is a very noble and beautiful thing to do. It's not an irrational thing to do. So the common good is the good of the individual, but a good of a higher order. And the individual really has it, but without depriving others of it. 